I see eating disorders and disordered eating all on a spectrum. And um, I think in general, that spectrum is very common. You know, sometimes there will be athletes who maybe have an undiagnosed eating disorder or need more serious care, whereas other times it might be more of just some disordered eating patterns and it is or it isn't impairing their quality of life as much. But that to say, I think most runners have some sort of history with an eating disorder or disordered eating. And, and sadly, it's almost normal in the culture we live in, especially in an aesthetic sport like running, which promotes smaller bodies, clean eating, perfection. And like you mentioned earlier, like we're very number oriented. We like to, you know, stay in a little category. It has to be black or white. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of different causes for that. But yeah, the culture as a whole, I think it's it's almost normalized in athletics, which is sad. Welcome to Maybe Running Will Help, the podcast that reminds us that running is about more than just performance and PRs. I'm Nikki Tamburino, also known on Instagram as One Classy Mother Runner. I'm an RRCA certified running coach and personal development enthusiast who knows firsthand that running has the power to transform our minds and our lives one step at a time. I'm excited to bring you stories from the community as well as research so we can explore the expected and not so expected ways running can and has helped make life better, regardless of your pace, place, or experience. Let's get started. On today's episode, we will be hearing thoughts and stories from a variety of guests with a range of qualifications. While the advice you hear may be coming from a clinician, these are general recommendations. Please understand that your individual experience is unique and that you deserve to be treated and supported as such. Many of our guests have provided contact information for those who are interested in connecting. If you or someone you know may be suffering from an eating disorder, I encourage you to reach out. If you are in crisis and need help immediately, you can contact the National Eating Disorder Association by texting NEDA to 741-741. Hey guys, today's show is about how we can keep our running community safe from an illness prevalent in our sport. This is a follow-up to our first episode on eating disorders, episode two of the podcast released in January. Recently, I released a raw bonus clip sharing my experience with an eating disorder. If you listen to it, thank you. I will continue to share as I work to understand myself and the illness, because as you will hear today, when we share our struggles, we show people they are not alone and demonstrate that treatment works and recovery is possible. And maybe most importantly, no matter what difficulties we are revealing, saying our story out loud is a form of self-love. It allows us to validate that our experiences are worth being heard, worth sharing, and we are worthy of being loved and cared for by others. Friends, please feel free to use this platform to express yourself and your experiences with our community. Providing you with a safe place to heal through our sport is one of the reasons I created this podcast. Find me on Instagram at One Classy Mother Runner or at Maybe Running Will Help if you have something to say. Do it for you and to give hope to others. You don't have to be healed to provide value. Wherever you are is worthy of expression. Now, we have a lot to cover today, so let's get to it. By my sophomore year, I started getting injuries, which were not something I had dealt with previously. Um, and in retrospect, I know that a lot of those injuries were a result of underfueling and overexercising and in the disordered eating behaviors that I was engaging in. Um, and so once I graduated college, I kind of um, had a pretty fraught relationship with running as well as with my body and with food, um, but didn't really um, analyze that relationship for a while and jumped right into running marathons, um, which I've now run I think 10 marathons. Um, and so a handful of those were definitely when I was still really disordered in my eating and exercise behaviors. Um, but since then, I've really grown just as a runner and as a person. Um, and now I'm able to run and train in a healthy way. And so um, I would like to say I've avoided all injuries, but unfortunately, I 
um, had surgery in November. So right now I don't have much of a relationship with running, but we're getting back there and focusing on getting stronger and healthy. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at today with running. That was Alexis Fairbanks, co-founder of Lane 9, an organization dedicated to educating active women and girls and their support systems on issues including women's health, eating disorder recovery, fertility, and sport. We're starting today's episode with an introduction to Lane 9 and its co-founders because while we're going to get into the details of eating disorders and proper nutrition for sport, these women speak with experience on running, the problem facing our community, and an understanding on what we can do to bring awareness and healing to each other and our sport. Now let's get to know a little about another lady leading the charge. Uh, My name is Heather Kaplan. I am a non-diet registered dietitian and currently based in Colorado Springs. Um, I've been a dietitian for a little over a decade and founded lane nine with Alexis, um, five years ago, six years ago, five, 2017, however many years ago that was. <laughs> um, and my role related to lane nine is, uh, we're co-founders together. So we do a lot of the same things. We kind of co-author, um, Instagram posts and newsletters when we send those out, Um, We do the podcast together. We all kind of just chime in and try to add our voice to lane nine when we can, and then also hold the space online for folks to share their story and um, to kind of further bring awareness to eating disorders and disordered eating in sports, but especially within the running community. Heather and I met when I was in a graduate school program and I had to interview a dietitian. And so I came across Heather um, and that's kind of how lane nine came to be. Um, She and I were just talking and we went for a run with another one of her friends. And we found that we all had really similar experiences with running and disordered eating um, and over-exercising and all of the things that come along with that. And we decided that we really needed to do something about it. And we weren't sure what that something was. But after many conversations, um, Lane 9 was kind of born, um, just as Heather said, to lend our voice to this conversation um, in whatever way that we can. So over the years, that has looked a little bit different and a little bit more active um, at some times than others. But like Heather said, we've just tried to create a community where we can share our stories, others can share their stories, um, and we can bring awareness to the issue of eating disorders and disordered eating within the sport of running and women's sports more generally. I played soccer growing up, which I think a lot of distance runners who like come into running recreationally as adults actually have a history with soccer. Just, it's a sport where like you need to run a lot, but most soccer players are not like thrilled about running a lot. And then, um, coming out of that like sport relationship and coming into college where I was not an athlete and didn't really know what to do with that void in my life. Um, having sports growing up and then like suddenly not having them, uh, was really weird. And so I, eventually got into running longer distances. Like at the time, a 5k felt really long and a 5k can sometimes still feel really long, but, um, I ran my first half marathon as a senior in college and I was studying nutrition. That's what my degree is in and had a really disordered relationship with food during college that was exacerbated by studying nutrition. And, when I started running, it totally flipped a switch in my head because I really wanted to be able to run. And I was really excited about having some goals that felt related to a sport, even though it was like a new to me sport and training for that half marathon made me think about food totally differently and, um, helped me kind of try to have a different relationship with food. And at the time it was still slightly disordered. It was like, well, food is fuel for my marathon running or my half marathon running or whatever I was doing. Um, and then gradually over the years, realizing like even thinking of it in that way can sometimes start to feel a little problematic. So, um, yeah, that's how I got into running. And then as an adult running has been a source of community for me, I've met many of my good friends through running. Um, and I've kind of come in and out of the sport as I've had three kids over the past five years, which sounds pretty wild to say out loud. Um, and so I've kind of had to take really long breaks and then come back, but I am currently, um, training for a half again, and that feels really fun. 
And yeah, it's just been kind of a, an ongoing process of like re-examining my relationship to running and why I do it and always making sure that, um, I can come back to a space where it feels fun and exciting and not disordered or not like doing it for a reason that would just be related to changing my body. When we launched Lane 9, it felt like we wanted a space where we could kind of think through like, how do we want to provide education or how do we want to reach the people who are coaching, mentoring, taking care of athletes and help them better understand these issues? Because we all felt like in our experiences, no one really understood what we were going through, whether they chose not to understand that or they really like didn't have the education to understand it. And that was frustrating for all of us. Um, And then as we launched it and put it out to the world, it was right around national eating disorder awareness week, which is this week in 2022. Um, So eating disorder awareness week was February 21st to the 27th this year. I'm a little late on my release, but to be fair, they did record this during that week. We didn't really time it that way. Or did we, maybe we did. It just sort of happened to be that that's when we felt ready to launch. Um, And the timing aligned with Nita week in 2017. And I just remember getting so many people who reached out within that first week. Cause we each shared our own story of like what we had experienced and people just responding and saying like, I want to share my story too. And we were like, okay, so it's also a space for people to write essays or maybe come on the podcast when that eventually was created. Um, and yeah, I think we definitely want it to be a space for runners. Um, that's the, the sport that all of us identify the most with, but we also recognize that running is certainly not the only sport that is impacted by diet culture norms and by aesthetic norms within a sport, um, or by eating disorders and disordered eating. So we welcome all, but we definitely, I think, relate most to the running community. According to the lane nine website, they say this about the name of the organization. There isn't a ninth lane on the track. Lane nine is a non-existent place, but has been the reality for many athletes. The ninth lane is a mentality, a thought process, a narrative, a certain way of running. It's thinking we have to control something, will our bodies to be different, or burn calories to earn food. It's wanting to be faster, leaner, and stronger, yet feels just like running around a track, going nowhere, but trying hard to get somewhere. Heather and Alexis aren't the only ones inspired to make a change after they recognize the prevalence of eating disorders and disordered eating in athletics. Let's hear from another professional in our community, my dietitian, Sarah Schlichter, starting with how she found her way into a profession aimed to help those who are impacted by improper fueling in sport. Hi, my name is Sarah Schlichter. I'm a registered dietitian with a master's in public health. I was a career changer. I was a college athlete. I was always very active. And I never thought about food growing up. I actually credit my parents a lot to me having a positive relationship with food. Um, Never force fed us, never said we had to clean our plates. I would ask for ice cream cake every single day after school. And my mom mom would be like, here you go. Here's your your ice cream cake. And it wasn't a big deal. So um, I never really thought about food. I didn't know food was a career. But fast forward to being a college athlete, and I started to learn that it could impact performance. I mean, after I remember after our weight room sessions, our coach would be like, go get your smoothie, go get your protein workout now your post workout stuff. Now you need to eat and refuel. I'm like, okay, what's the big deal. So um, I realized that once I did start fueling adequately, my performance improved. And fast forward to that, I, I entered I picked up on running after college. I actually was dating someone who's now my husband, who was a college cross country and track and field coach. And he was really passionate about running. Obviously he was a, he was a runner too, but on his team, he had many athletes who were suffering from what I now know to be disordered eating habits, eating disorders. Um, Definitely some habits around not eating enough. And it was just, he saw it a lot and, I realized like, this is, this is prevalent in the industry. I love athletes. I, being a former athlete myself, I did want to go back to school and learn more about 
the sports nutrition piece, but also um, want, I was, I don't want to say I knew um, about the non-diet initiative then, because I didn't quite know about that, but I knew that nutrition could be helpful for people in so many ways. So it's not like I was trying to end the obesity epidemic, but more so I was trying to help people learn to utilize nutrition in different ways. We haven't heard the last of Sarah or our guests from Lane 9, but I want to introduce you to a few more clinicians who want to help us understand the intersection of movement and nutrition and how and when it becomes problematic. Hi, my name is Indy Levenstein. I'm a certified eating disorder specialist uh, supervisor and also a certified specialist in sports dietetics. Um, actually started my career as an eating or sorry, as a sports dietitian, um, and then made the switch over into eating disorders. And so I have experience in, um, intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization levels of care and, uh, have my own small private practice, um, where I see some patients via telehealth and, um, now work as a nutrition manager in a PHP program. Our wellness culture and our diet culture very much capitalizes on, um, kind of exercise and food being like having this relationship that can very quickly turn um, not supportive. Sure. So my name is Harriet Frew. I'm an eating disorder therapist based in the UK and I'm a BACP accredited counsellor and I've been working in eating disorders for about 20 years and have personal experience of having recovered from bulimia as well with diet culture and also the wellness industry, almost like, you know, doing lots and lots of exercise is just seen as such a positive thing. And of course, exercise and movement is a really healthy thing physically and mentally, but it can be um, quite easy to overdo it and then to be kind of praised for that and for people just to see you as the kind of really fit person when actually you're really, really struggling. I'm Dr. Chloe Bedford. I'm a counselling psychologist. Um, in the UK. Um, so I have um, a professional doctorate in counselling psychology. I think with any kind of coping strategy, it doesn't matter what it is, if it's the only one you've got, then it can become actually quite negative. And I think with with exercise, if it's the only coping strategy you've got when you're stressed, and so it's the one that you always turn to, you're always seeking that high, then you're going to end up kind of running yourself into the ground I think it's running is really important to have as part of um a tool in your toolkit but it's so easy I think to become quite obsessive and it's the only thing and you think it's the only thing that's ever going to make you feel better and you find yourself kind of pushing yourself out the door and even after a mile you still feel exhausted um I think that's usually a sign that actually maybe maybe you need to take a break. Sport generally is a really healthy thing for mental and physical health. But if you do do competitive sport, you know, we know from some of the studies on body image that it can be a sort of risk factor for being more preoccupied with your body, more dissatisfied with your body. And perhaps particularly if you're in a sport where weight or aesthetics is quite important. So particularly people like jockeys or ballerinas, or I guess as well, like you're sort of saying with sort of runners, um, you know, with, with runners, you're probably encouraged to sort of be light, to be kind of athletic and faster. So I think it can be a bit more of a sort of risk factor when you've had to really focus on how you look, maybe your weight from a young age. You also might be comparing yourself to mm -hmm. others. And if your body shape doesn't conform to those around you and what you perceive to be athletic, that can also be a bit of a trigger for poor body image and wanting to change your body. Um, and I think within fitness generally, I mean, I think things are changing, but I think perhaps in the past, people didn't really have the awareness, you know, coaches and things like that have the awareness that people could have a really disordered relationship with food and their body. And those kind of issues were often just hidden and people would just sort of deal with them quietly on their own. So I think it was very easy for those kind of behaviours to be um, hidden and people to be sort of dealing with them in quite an isolated way and people not getting treatment early enough. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so important. I think people that do come forward with their own stories across the board, um, first of all, are showing so much bravery. I think, you know, they're unfortunately, <laughs> the stigma is still definitely there. But the more people talk about it and the more it's normalized of like this is a human experience and a kind of very 
you know, valid human struggle that a lot of people are dealing with. And what we know about eating disorders is that they thrive in isolation, right? So like when people mm. don't talk about it and people don't connect with other people and the eating disorder, you know, it, it really creates this space of I am the only one that has this problem and what's wrong with me. And that further, you know, digs that hole of isolation. Yeah. Um, so I think definitely like people coming forward, I think also, you know, more kind of cross training between sex, you know, different clinician specialties. So like not everyone needs to be an eating disorder specialist by any means, but I think the more awareness there are for like red flags, the more that they can say, Hey, this now I'm noticing this, let's, you know, get you in with a specialist or let me consult with a specialist so that we're making sure we're giving you appropriate care. Um, so I think that it's coming from, I think social media obviously has both ends of the spectrum of like, there's a lot of harmful information out there, but also there's a lot more ability to connect and create the spaces that are supportive and getting more information around these messaging. And so I think there's also more awareness that way when people are both talking about their own experiences and clinicians advocating for like, hey, this is maybe not the most helpful messaging or here's, you know, more supportive way to say this or things like that. I think um, I think what's timely right now, and I won't, won't say it's new, but I'll say it's having a moment and getting more awareness is just relative energy deficiency in sport. So we we kind of shorten it as red S. So you may have heard of red S or reds. Um, and essentially, it's we used to think of this syndrome of side effects as the female athlete triad. You know, not eating enough, not having a period, and poor bone health. But now we're realizing that it's actually so much more and being in an energy deficient state. So in other words, just under fueling, not only for activity, but for your life and your daily function of your organs can have consequences on mental health too. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, um, it reaches out into psychology, depression, anxiety, gut health, um, obviously bone health, immunity. So I think we're realizing that it has so many different touch points. And even if, you know, right away, it, you might not realize any side effects, it, it does catch up with you. So I think more people are talking about this and more physicians are becoming aware of it, some sports physicians, which is great. So I just hope that it continues to be a topic of awareness, because if we can, there's screening tools for this. And if we can use them, we're more likely to be able to catch more people who may have flown under the radar or need help. Fortunately and unfortunately today, there's a lot of talk in the coaches world about how coaches have been, you know, telling athletes to lose weight or get to a certain body size and how that improves performance, which is obviously leading to a lot of disordered eating, eating disorders, um, amenorrhea, energy deficiency, injury risk, all of that. But, you know, as a young athlete or someone who's really dependent on performance or positive feedback. If a coach tells you to do something, you're more likely to do it. So I think a lot of this can all be tied up into it together. And then, you know, when, when asked about the reasoning, it's like, oh, it's for the sport. This is what it takes to be a runner, or I have to eat this way in order to perform. And yeah, it can get really dangerous. Wow. We have covered a lot since I checked in. Our experts talked about the importance of awareness and how eating disorders thrive in isolation and why it's so important to educate our support systems, including doctors, coaches, and our peers. Let's keep going with Sarah and Nutrition for Athletes. Before we get to more general information about eating disorders, who else is at risk and getting help? I, I often tell people the clients I'm working with or when I'm giving talks, I mean, yeah, to your point, nutrition is often like the secret weapon. It's, it's underrated. We, we have no trouble spending tons of money on new shoes and training plans or coaches and doing what we're supposed to do for that piece of it. But when it comes to nutrition, there's hesitancy or maybe just a lot of misinformation about understanding how it really does contribute to performance. I mean, we have several studies on athletes telling us that carbs are going to fuel PRs, um, low fat running or low carb running um, is not going to help intensity because we need carbs for those high intensity forms of activity. Um, we have a lot of research around this. So 
when it comes to nutrition and food and performance, we really know what's going to help fuel activity and what's going to help recover. However, I do want to put this out there that oftentimes, again, when we see things as black and white, like I have to be perfect with nutrition or I failed, that's where it can get a little bit dangerous. And yes, nutrition is, of course, of utmost importance, but it's not everything Hmm. when we come to performance. So I actually have this visual that I use with clients. And there's so much other things that we often tend to forget, like sleep or Getting along with teammates and dynamics, coachability, your genetics, reaction time, balance, muscle and body composition, endurance, concentration. Like there's so many other qualities that go into performance too. So I think it it just gets difficult if we're putting all of our marbles in one basket and remembering that, yes, nutrition is a piece, but it's not the only thing. And we really want to make sure that our quality of life or the other things are um, tended to as well. Oftentimes, athletes who suffer from disordered eating need a team of professionals to help. So what role does a dietitian play? I was just going to say the nutrition piece that I provide is obviously making sure they are adequately fueled. So we do want to make sure that we have enough energy on board to to meet goals or if exercise training is part of the equation, we definitely have to take that into consideration. And then I am doing a lot of work about trying to normalize a lot of food things, show a lot of visuals, help them understand what an athlete needs. And oftentimes it resonates with them when we talk about performance or reducing the risk of injury or getting a period back because it's a really important sign of your health. And here's how we can do that. So athletes are, are usually pretty determined and they do want to succeed. So I think um, sometimes just finding what resonates with them, what's their, their why behind this and, and really going from there. And like I mentioned before, a lot of unlearning, um, whether the food rules come from thinking they can't have a nighttime snack or eat after a certain time, or they don't deserve to eat dessert if they don't do a long run, whatever these rules that they have, um, a lot of time it's debunking them and really helping them understand that it's not serving them. And all of this time that they're spending on stressing or rule following or worrying about being perfect could, could be spent elsewhere. So yeah, I would say there's a lot of overlap too with the therapy piece. There's certainly a strong mental aspect and it seems dietitians encounter some of the mental obstacles when working with clients, like the food rules Sarah mentioned. Listen in to Sarah's response to my question about some rules she helps clients overcome. Sure. So some of the ones that come to mind right away are eating at certain times of day or not eating at certain times of day. So, you know, if it's not 12 o'clock on the dot, it's not lunchtime. And if I'm hungry before then, well, I just have to wait it out or suffer through it. Um, So really, again, this goes back to the black and white thinking, like really thinking I can't eat unless it's this time or I can't eat after this time. This happens often at night, not eating after a certain time of day. Yep. Um, eating below a certain calorie level, people might not see that as a food rule. Again, that might feel quote unquote normal, but um, you're not a robot. You don't need to fit in a box. Your body is going to need a different amount of calories, energy, micronutrients every single day. So trying to eat for the same amount of number day in and day out and stressing about that, I would see as a food rule. Um even things like not eating before a short, easy workout. And sometimes we have to consider intention. So maybe the intention here is like, I don't have time and I'm really going to have a great post-workout snack. But if the intention is, oh, I'm going to burn more fat or I don't need this, um, I would really challenge that and say, well, what would it feel like to have something small before your workout and actually feel good and not have your blood sugar dip? And then another big one is always around desserts, right? Like (laughs) I can't have dessert. I can't have ice cream or anything unless I do a long run. I can't eat my pizza unless I do this or um, unless all of my eating for the week has been perfect or anything that's quote unquote unhealthy or processed. um, I can't have those foods. So a lot of like good or bad mentality. And sadly, what we do is we tie our morality into these food choices. So if we do eat, you know, a food that we deem to be off limits, well, then we're a bad person. And then that affects our behaviors, or we might, you know, restart our food rules and have the restrictive mindset up again. And it really leads to an endless cycle. So I would say those are some of the main ones, but there's a lot of sneaky ones that 
we again might just see as normal ways of eating that we realize um we don't realize are dictating some of our eating habits yikes i can certainly relate to those rules now what about rules about certain food groups i mean most runners know the importance of carbs but they seem to get a bad rap in the mainstream just in case you ever find yourself questioning your pre-race pasta let's see what sarah has to say about this source of fuel Yeah, absolutely. I mean, carbs are probably one of the topics I'm talking about most often on my platform and with clients, because it seems that in our culture today, there's always, there's always a villain and it used to be fat with these low fat diets, but now it's carbs. So a lot of Mm -hmm. things are promoting low carbs or carbs make you fat, whatever it is. There's all of these myths surrounding carbs and poor carbs. I mean, carbs are really my favorite food group. And in terms of working with athletes, they're the most important food group. Yeah, Uh, that's because they break down into glucose, sugar, which literally fuels our muscles. I mean, we need glucose to contract to maintain blood sugar to support our brain when we're doing any sort of exercise. And if we have if we don't have glucose, that brain that blood glucose can dip, Um, we can have cognitive functioning, we can have messed up electrolytes, and obviously cramping, hitting the wall, things like that. So carbs are really an intricate part of an athlete's meal plan before exercise, during longer exercises, and then after exercise for recovery. Okay, so I get the carbs. How about processed food? That's one that I sometimes struggle with. I feel like you're not supposed to eat food that's processed. So I've really tried to expand um, the way I communicate in this area because a lot of this is going to depend on where the client is, their access to food, their budget constraints, um, the social economic environment, things like that in a broader public health perspective. So you know, any dieting messages around you will say avoid processed foods. They're loaded with sugar. They're loaded with sodium. But honestly, processed foods is such a broad category, like baby carrots are processed. Mm -hmm. Um, Frozen fruits and vegetables are processed. String cheese is processed. So when we say processed food and we group everything together as being unhealthy, I think that's really dangerous. Of course, we don't want to eat all packaged foods. But I think if some clients are maybe getting vegetables from cans or they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables or they don't have anywhere to store them or their WIC benefits have run out. We really have to take that into consideration because overall we want to make sure that people are eating adequately. And if they only have access or the ability to get one type of food, we don't want to villainize that because I think that perpetuates diet culture. Yeah. But I think in general, you know, many dietitians can agree like, yes, we want to eat whole fruit, fruits and vegetables, whole foods when possible Um, maybe minimize high sodium foods if we have perhaps a higher history of heart disease or hypertension or things like that. And we don't want to eat too many added sugars in terms of like everything we're eating. But I think when we hyper-focus on that, we really lose our sense of, you know, what our body truly wants. If we're only focused on nutrition and numbers, it really takes away the enjoyment from eating too. Yeah. So it is, uh, you know, a delicate road that we're really trying to work on both. Like, yes, nutrition is important for health. I would never deny that, but it's not the only thing. And there's a lot to be said about enjoying food and not stressing about eating, quote unquote, the perfect meal or snack. So overall, in terms of processed foods, like I try to just normalize them, you know, Mm -hmm. like cereal or frozen waffle before a run is great, you know, and if you like that and that works for you. You shouldn't have any guilt when you're making those choices. I've got one more specific and important question. This is one thing I've heard mixed reviews about, but I'd have a hard time giving it up. So I personally, like I have coffee before running. I really enjoy it. So coffee can be beneficial. I mean, it's not food and it's not carbs. So we're not substituting it for food. But in terms of caffeine specifically before a run, there are There's a lot of research showing it can be ergogenic. It can prolong fatigue. It can make your pace feel easier. Um, And to do that, we we have a certain range. It's three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight, you know, one to two hours before running. So coffee can be helpful. For some people, you know, it helps you stay regular, go to the bathroom before a run, but you don't just want to have coffee and no fuel.
realizing that fueling during a long run is not a sign of weakness. It's actually just to boost your performance and it's to keep your blood sugar stable and keep you focused. And it actually is a sign of strength because you're going to perform better is just a total turn in mindset and understanding oftentimes that many of us are under fueling Mm -hmm. in terms of the number of carbs we recommend per hour, which is usually somewhere between 30 to 60, sometimes upwards of 90, depending on if you're doing a longer distance run. But it is going to be individualized too. And practicing and seeing the difference of how you feel. And even if you don't necessarily feel different during the run, you might feel different after. You might have less cravings during the day. You might recover quicker, all because you're fueling your body better. So I often describe it as like it has benefits outside of just the current action. You're really going to see these benefits in the future and feel the difference later too. Okay, cool. So now that we've discussed some of the common food myths, let's talk about proper fueling, starting with what underfueling looks like. Generally, I mean, we typically think of hitting the wall. So things like that, I mean, having the cramping or just not being able to go further or not being able to hit the paces that you've hit in practice or what you should be able to do on paper, um, not recovering as quickly having fogginess, fatigue, um, low blood sugar, headaches, all of those are, mm. are, you know, symptoms of underfueling or low blood sugar, the brain not getting enough glucose, all of that. Um, electrolyte imbalances, dehydration, all of that can come from underfueling too. And then outside of running, um, this is where it gets really interesting. Underfueling can look different for every, for everyone. And this is where, you know, looking at the whole picture, not just the physical aspects of someone is important. So if you haven't had a period in months, or you've had a lot of stress fractures over the last year, or you're constantly getting sick, these are things that may lead me to believe that you're underfueling and you're not getting enough energy on board for your body to carry out what I would see as normal operations for a well-fueled person to carry out. Okay. So what if you realize you've been underfueling? What does increasing your nutrition look like? So obviously it's going to be very individual for each person, but when I'm working with someone to increase nutrition, which is often what we're doing, um, I do try to meet the client where they are because oftentimes there is some hesitancy, there's some food rules, but um, I do have to challenge those. That's my job and I'm on your team and supporting you through this. So it is going to be uncomfortable. So I'm often telling people, Um, It might be uncomfortable physically, but also mentally. It might be hard to sit with this or not want to go run or eat more food at a sitting. Um, So sometimes we're increasing portion sizes. Sometimes we're increasing eating more often throughout the day. And sometimes it's a blend of both. Um, It could also include having a a specific pre-post-run snack that maybe we weren't including before or having some higher calorie foods or liquids in the diet as well. Um, All of this in an effort to make the body feel safe. I mean, if we're boiling it down to something simple, that's what we're doing, but also better prep your body to handle all of the stress that comes with high training, um, high training volumes, trying to run PRs and then recovery as well. And then in terms of of timing, I mean, I, I think hopefully this is what you're asking, but Mm -hmm. we generally want to eat 30 to 60 minutes before a run. Um, If you're going to be running a little bit longer, you you may want to eat a little bit larger quantity. And in that case, you might need a little bit more time to digest. So, I mean, we have equations that we use in sports nutrition that's, you know, treating humans like robots, but we really do have to remember everyone is a little bit different. Some people get a little bit nervous. Some people can't stomach much before a run. And if that's the case, then we're going to really try to make up for it on the back end or during your run. So I really try to take clients' preferences into consideration, but sometimes it's just challenging some of these rules that we think don't work for us. Maybe they didn't used to, but if we're more open to different ways of fueling or challenging some of these old trains of thought, it can actually be really empowering to see that something may actually work better for you. I thought it was really interesting when we talked about fullness, like eating to a a certain point. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what it should feel like when you're eating, like what, how, how full should you be feeling? 
Yeah. So I think you're referring to, so a lot of times when we're talking about hunger and fullness, and honestly, this is, this is a big thing because an eating disorder or disordered eating really teaches you to ignore these feelings. So we, we become out of touch with hunger and maybe we only think of hunger as like a growling stomach and we forget that feeling tired or thinking about food or um, not being able to concentrate could be signs of hunger too. So a lot of it is relearning, but fullness is a big one with clients because we associate being full to overeating or eating mm-hmm. too much. When in reality, we are supposed to have a physical sensation after eating. There's supposed to be um, some distension. There's There may be a little bit of bloating. That's a normal part of eating and digesting. Um, I tell people if if you never feel full, it's almost like, you're always going to be hungry. We're always, I think the analogy I used with you, Nikki, was we're just going to be stopping at the gas station every few miles to get just enough. And we're never going to be able to go on cruise control because our tank is never full. Right. Yeah. So yeah, this fullness piece is important. But another thing that comes into play when I talk about fullness, they often go hand in hand is satisfaction. And fullness is this physical sensation that we feel And satisfaction is more of this mental sensation, like you're pleasantly full, you're not thinking about food anymore, you don't have a craving for um, something else. And having them both is a sign of a good, pleasant eating experience, and usually a sign that we're eating enough. Um, So gauging fullness is, is a little difficult, but we I use something called the hunger scale, which helps put some physical sensations to different numbers so you can learn to see where you fall on the scale. And if you're, you know, constantly neutral after eating, well, how can we practice feeling a little bit more full so you don't have to eat for a few hours and you can live your life and do other things? Sleep. I always forget about sleep. (laughs) (laughs) You're not the only one. I mean, I oftentimes when I am talking with clients, we're we're spending sessions talking about things other than food, and they're like, "What? I thought we were talking about nutrition." (laughs) I'm like, "No, these are all important too. I promise." That was a lot of really helpful information, and you can probably see why I like working with Sarah so much. Now let's talk about eating disorders in general. And while we know they're prevalent in athletics, who else needs more recognition in this space? When we're talking about eating disorder, we're talking about people who, whose lives are kind of consumed by what they eat, what they don't eat. um, And they use food as a way of managing emotions um, and managing distress. um, And, and, and I guess kind of, I mean, I think when you talk about eating disorders, people typically think anorexia, but we've also got bulimia and we've got binge eating disorder. And and they're very much ways of kind of managing difficult emotions by kind of, um, you know, <clears throat> trying to eat as much as you possibly can, kind of stuffing down the feelings with food. And then um, if it's bulimia purging or if it's not, if, it, if it's binge eating disorder, just feeling really rubbish about themselves because they've eaten to the point that their stomach hurts and again kind of when I'm talking about a binge I'm not saying you know I ate uh, a packet of crisps in a Mars bar watching the telly on a Friday night it's you're talking like thousands and thousands of calories eating Mm. to the point where your stomach hurts that's a binge right um and and so I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about eating disorders people whose lives are kind of consumed by how they look so you might not necessarily be underweight. Um, in fact, I think a large proportion of people with an eating disorder are not underweight. Um, but your day-to-day kind of life, your ability to kind of go out and socialize with friends, all of that is your ability to kind of focus at work. All of that is kind of impacted by your eating. I guess everybody in the whole population is on the spectrum somewhere between at one end a really healthy relationship with food and at the other end a full-blown eating disorder so I guess someone with disordered eating usually sort of falls somewhere in between so if you have disordered eating you don't necessarily meet a clinical diagnosis um you know for criteria for an eating disorder 
um, but you may still be displaying disordered eating symptoms. So say, for example, you might still be binge eating occasionally, you might still be restricting your eating, you might be purging occasionally, you might be over-exercising, but maybe you're not doing it as frequently as would warrant a full-blown diagnosis. But I guess what's really important to say is that disordered eating isn't healthy and mm -hmm. it would be really wise to seek help if you notice that you're somewhere in that middle spectrum. So one of the questions I had for our specialists was why do eating disorders quote work as a coping tool for some people? Well I guess you know if you're focused on food body image calories, whatever, all the time, it means that you perhaps don't have to focus on other things that might be going on in your life that might be difficult. So say, for example, if someone was getting bullied or something, and um, that was really, really difficult to manage, or if there was a bereavement, maybe that was just really, really um, challenging to sort of get over or too painful to feel those feelings, um, or maybe a, like a rejection in a relationship that just feels so challenging to manage. So I guess, you know, there's usually often like if you go beneath the food and the body image and symptoms and you start to explore the feelings that are underneath, there will usually be some kind of upset, some kind of distress, maybe some kind of trauma that has happened. And often the eating disorder it's not a kind of conscious decision that someone wakes up one day and thinks, right, I'm going to use food to cope. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, I think, you know, in a culture that we live in, it can feel very seductive to lose weight, change your body, you know, make yourself feel better by really kind of focusing your energy in that way. So I think often people will start out, maybe either like just losing their appetite because they're stressed or actively dieting. Um, in perhaps quite an innocent way to begin with, you know, in an attempt to kind of feel better, boost self-worth, but then that becomes something that is difficult to stop. So what starts off as something that felt like it was making someone feel better starts to kind of get its grip on you. And then, you know, it becomes this real sort of preoccupation and, and takes over, but it also then becomes very difficult to let go of as well because of it. I guess it kind of brings temporary relief, whether that be, and I think people are different. Some people will find restrictive eating more soothing. Some people will find binge eating, overeating more soothing or overexercise. You know, people are very different in their presentations and what they will turn to. And many people as well will have experienced like a combination of all those different symptoms together as well. For some people, I think this isn't true for everybody, but for some people, going on the weight loss journey, getting the validation and compliments can be a way of at least temporarily boosting self-worth. Although I think it's really clear to make the distinction that people with eating disorders, you know, as you know, often, you know, don't really like their body and don't really want to be displaying their body. And they are, you know, eating disorders are not about vanity in any way. But I think if you start to get validation for how you look, even if it's more around like perhaps being small or the athletic one, it can become part of identity. And then that feels very unsafe to let go of because of um, it becomes this sort of safe thing that you know and that you cling to and that people know you for. Okay, I see how eating disorders function in someone's life. Now let's talk about how they're harmful. You know, sometimes it will see if... um if people have experienced sort of, you know, trauma or abuse or had really, really difficult early life and then, you know, haven't sort of learned how to regulate their emotions, to self-care, to have healthy relationships, when they get in a destructive relationship with food, then that almost becomes a like traumatic, abusive relationship, which is kind of almost like repeating that just awful stuff they experienced in their childhood, really. But going on internally. So I think, you know, the mental torture can be really extreme with an eating disorder. Um, but obviously, as well, the physical side is really impactful. And I think, you know, sometimes we see people coming into clinic who have lived with an eating disorder for 
I don't know, decades and maybe been sort of vomiting regularly and like have lost all their teeth mm. and, you know, you know, really have really swollen and salivary glands and, you know, just don't look well, I guess. Um, but it's such an individual thing for each person. We know that eating disorders is getting more attention when it comes to athletics from our earlier conversations. But who are we missing? Who still needs more awareness in this space? Oh, so many people, so many people. Yeah. I think I think you're right in terms of men. I also think um, different um, racial backgrounds as well, because people think that, you know, an eating disorder is a skinny white girl with anorexia in her kind of late teens and early 20s. And actually an eating disorder can be seen kind of right across all all races all genders all ages um and i think that that image needs to be kind of shown to people um yeah, it, yeah. you don't have to be 18 and white in order to have an eating disorder many many people with eating disorders are sort of normal weight or overweight and you know the view that someone has to be emaciated um is outdated and obviously yep. that's not to um take away from the fact that obviously you know there are still a percentage of people that are underweight and are experiencing anorexia nervosa and it's very serious and um that is a really you know, extremely valid eating disorder but i think what's just really helpful is we are appreciating the diversity of eating disorders now now that we've covered what eating disorders are and who they impact let's talk about treatment you can't change for anybody else and if you are coming into treatment or you're accessing support because of you feel that you should do it almost for the people around you um that's probably not going to help you make the changes for the long term so i think yes yeah, so it has to come the change has to come from you and i guess you know, this is something that can't be forced. And sometimes people have to get to the point where they're just so fed up with the eating disorder, so fed up with the behaviours that they get to a point themselves where they just think, actually, although this is really scary, I am ready for change now. Um, so yeah, it's, re it's really important. I think if we, you know, if anyone's listening, who's a carer or family member, um, you know, supporting someone with an eating disorder, if you put pressure on that person to change, actually, it, it's probably not going to help and that it could drive them to be more secretive or to sort of please you and say that they're ready for changing when they're not. And I think it's so important that people have to get to that point themselves. As human beings, if we have a loved one struggling, it can often make us feel like anxious, annoyed, frustrated, so we might initially go in sort of sort of ruffling someone's feathers a bit because we're like really anxious ourselves, really upset ourselves, worried about them. So the conversation might not get off on a good note. So I guess it's really helpful to get into like a kind of calm, accepting, encouraging, warm place before you have the conversation and not to push it, um, you know, just to say something like, like I noticed that you've, you you seem more withdrawn. Um, you know, I noticed that you don't seem to be eating as normal. Is everything okay? So you're kind of like, you know, showing that you care, like showing that you have observed something that's a bit different, but you're also then kind of asking them if they're, if they're ready to talk, if they want to talk about it. And I think that person has to be kind of ready for that. But if you sort of sow those seeds and you go in gently, they are much more likely to open up to you, even if it's not on that particular day, but you've kind of already sort of almost passed the olive branch almost, or you know, you've reached out and that can be really significant. Part of the like trickiness of the eating disorder is that, yes, it might say like, when I reach X amount of weight or this or that or whatever, you know, the eating disorder can, create all of these narratives, but that it's never actually going to stick to it, right? Like once 
that quote unquote goal is achieved, then there will just be a new goal. So it's never going to be good enough or sick enough or whatever. And this is all in air quotes. I know we're being recorded, so you can't see me, but like all in air quotes, you know, the things that the, the, the narrative, the eating disorder tells that is, that is part of the piece that makes it so tricky and so harmful is that it, it continues to kind of like, you know, move the mark of what, what would be considered bad enough. And so that's where I'm always so clear and so passionate about the piece that like, if this is causing you any distress, it is worth getting help. It is worth addressing. It is worth changing because there is so much amazing life to live out there that is not kind of um, overcome or overshadowed by these obsessive thoughts. The physical aspects, just looking at someone physically rarely tells us the whole story. Like I said, I mean, they could look completely quote unquote nourished and normal, but if we don't know what's going on mentally or they're struggling or you're spending hours of your day feeling bad about eating food or worrying about what to eat and it's impeding the quality of your life, I mean, your your systems are being affected. Labs may catch up, but initially they may not show abnormal levels. So, you know, even just looking at someone's lab work and saying, oh, you're good um, without digging deeper to ask more questions about how is your view on food? Um, how stressed are you? What foods are you eating? What foods are you avoiding? If we're not asking questions like that, then I think that's a big reason a lot of these are going undiagnosed. And sadly, a lot of doctors just aren't well-versed in this area. Mm-hmm. If, if you go to a doctor and say, I haven't had my period in six months, they'll say, oh, you're active. You're yep. a runner. That's why. That's normal. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not. It's the furthest thing from normal. But this culture has come to normalize all that. And sadly, um, unless they're trained, there are some doctors who are trained in eating disorders and dealing with these clinical patients. But if they're not, they just don't have they don't have the tools to really dig deeper. And and hopefully this is where there's a big bridge, but hopefully we can bridge this gap and start referring out to dietitians and or therapists in these situations when we see warning signs. I mean, there's questionnaires that people can fill out that give us um, at least some information and a head start on what behaviors could be considered abnormal or um, hyper-focused. The clinicians in this field are so passionate about what we do and about helping people get to a space of peace with food, body, exercise. Even if you don't have an eating disorder, but seeking out an eating disorder-informed therapist, an eating disorder-informed dietitian will give that space, right, a supportive space that then also has that language that will be supportive of a, a positive relationship with food, one that isn't, you know, very diet-focused, number-focused, all of those things that can be pretty triggering, even for someone without an eating disorder. You know, there's still a lot of people that have just perhaps lived with maybe not a full-blown eating disorder, but they, you know, they experience experiencing disordered eating behaviors and they may even be like kind of binging or purging or restricting you know a few times a month um, enough to be like sort of detrimental to their health but they've lived with it for so long that they don't really realize that they have a problem people don't often seek help early enough and I think historically as well and to the present day there are not enough services and there's not enough eating disorder therapist to be able to provide support so I think sometimes people have tried to seek help and then you know um, face a closed door so have kind of given up and tried to kind of manage on their own I know certainly with my own experience I tried to seek help probably about three years into having the illness and back then there was very very little support available so I kind of muddled through really and kind of recovered on my own but then I kind of had some therapy afterwards which was really helpful in the whole healing process but yeah I guess eating disorders do tend to be sort of longer in duration rather than shorter I guess again it's really an individual thing we know that if you can intervene and get treatment in the first three years of having an eating disorder you're much more likely to make a full recovery if you get help you know, again, I think as well, if you're like an adolescent, your brain is much more malleable. If you get that help early on, again, you are probably more likely to be able to get a full recovery. But after someone's had an eating disorder for more than three years, um, the brain does start to change a bit. And it, um, you know, just that restriction kind of makes thinking much more rigid, Mm -hmm. change becomes more difficult. But having said all of that, 
I've worked with people that have had eating disorders for over a decade and have made a full recovery. So I guess it's such an individual thing, isn't it? And I think yeah. the important message is that recovery is possible and to be hopeful. And um, I just think as well, I'm running a bulimia group at the moment and we've got quite a few people there in their 50s and early 60s mm. that have never sought help and they're wow. making some really great progress and that, you know, the help just wasn't available for them when they were younger. So it's never too late. Thanks so much to all of our guests for taking the time to contribute to this podcast and for all they do every day to support our community. Let's wrap this up with final thoughts from our friends and where you can reach them. Doctors are becoming much more clued up and I think more people are getting trained, you know, aren't they? They're more kind of mental health professionals now, more kind of specialist dietitians have an understanding of eating disorders. So um, yeah, think things are improving slowly. I have a podcast, The Eating Disorder Therapist. So yeah, I'd be very happy if anyone wants to like listen to some of those episodes. And you can find me on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist with underscores between each word. Um, yeah, and my website is theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. Yeah, there's so much information out there. It's confusing. If I was a consumer, I would be so confused, like hearing one thing from an influencer, something else from a celebrity, something else from a dietitian. You don't know what to think. And when you're bombarded with diet ads or new programs or cleanses or toxic food things all of the time, yeah, it can really make an impact. I think my ultimate goal is really to aim to simplify nutrition. I mean, we have different food groups. They all play a purpose. We need all of them. So any way of eating that's cutting one out or making you feel, quote unquote, bad uh, mm -hmm. for eating those foods is just, it's not sustainable and it's not evidence-based nutrition. So yes, I'm on Instagram. That's probably my most active platform outside of my blog. So it's just bucketlisttummy underscore RD there. And the blog has recipes and a lot of nutrition posts. There's also a tab that people can reach out. I am taking one-on-one -on -one clients. I have an assistant dietitian too. So both of us are staying busy. And um, there's thoughts of maybe doing some group coaching in the future. Um, so that's TBD. But I also do have a podcast. It's called Nail Your Nutrition. And we talk a lot about adequate fueling and sports nutrition topics there. What would your life look like if you didn't have to worry about food, if you didn't worry about what you're, you're looking, you look like, if you didn't have that kind of constant obsessive thinking, actually, what would your life look like? What would you be doing that you're not, you can't do at the moment? You can find me over on Instagram. Um, I'm the running psychologist. Um, and my website is www.marathonpsychology.com. Um, which is a bit more kind of sensible and grown up than my Instagram. I want to help people make food joyful and make food a positive part of their life. And that, you know, that healing piece of their relationship with food. Community is so important. And so even though like your clinicians aren't your community, but like any type of connection that you can have with other humans that feel supportive, right? Like that is that makes all the difference. As runners, we know how important community is. Thanks to Dee. You can find her at nutritional underscore sense on Instagram. If you related to this topic and want to connect with supportive athletes or help support the community with your experience, don't forget about Lane 9. Yeah, so if you'd like to learn more about our community and engage with us, um, and be a part of the Lane 9 community, you can find us a few different places. You can find us on um, Instagram and Twitter at Lane9Project. Uh, you can also find us on our website at Lane9Project.org. And then our podcast, which unfortunately, a bunch of our episodes got deleted, but our newer episodes are up there. Um, so you can just search the Lane 9 Project podcast. Um, right now, it's just on Apple Podcasts, but we're working at and getting it back up um, in other places as well. Yeah. So definitely connect with us. Um, send us an email. We'll try to get back to you soon ish, <laughs> but we're on all the places. Yeah. Facebook, Instagram, our website. Um, and we'd love to meet you and connect with you and maybe share your story if you are looking to do that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks.
All right. Thanks, Nikki. Well, this podcast is called Maybe Running Will Help. So we have to close on a positive note. Here's a clip from Chloe on the benefits of running for our mental health. Oh, there's so many. I mean, I think, um, I mean, exercise in itself is really good for your mental health because it releases endorphins and it kind of gives you that high and it can really kind of lift your mood when you're feeling really down. And we know that just that in itself is really positive. Um, I think the thing with running is often we do it outside. Mm. And so um, that can be really great in terms of getting natural light um, and absorbing natural light, which in time can help with sleep. Um, so um, getting outside um, as much as possible in, in, in natural light can help with the kind of melatonin production and helping your body know when it's nighttime and daytime and, and sort of, and that helps with sleep. Um, it can be really positive in terms of thinking about if you've got a training plan um, that you're sticking to, to sort of train for a race or something, um, that can give you a routine in your week, which when you're struggling with your mental health, you can lose completely. And you sort of, um, and, and so having that routine is really important. And alongside that kind of seeing your progress get better as you move through that training plan, as you hit certain sessions, it can give you a sense of achievement, which again is really positive and really important for your mental health. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's kind of, I could talk for hours about how it can be really positive for your mental <laughs> health. Thanks for listening to Maybe Running Will Help. This podcast is a production of Anchor. If you like this show, remember you can hear it here on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message or direct message me on Instagram or Facebook at Maybe Running Will Help. If you have a story you are willing to share with the community, please reach out. Keep running, keep inspiring, and keep sharing how Maybe Running Will Help. Have a great run, everybody. P.S. Guys, don't forget you can support the show by purchasing a Maybe Running Will Help t-shirt. Find the link on our Instagram account or under the podcast tab at NikkiTamburino.com. P.P.S. Don't be shy, guys please reach out to me so I can share your story. We all have a story. Help promote the sport and expand our community to those who need it. Together, we are stronger. Okay, I think that's it. I hope to hear from you guys soon. Until then, have a great run.